Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? I'm Elliot Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. Today I'm joined by Nick Dawson, Editor-in-Chief of Talk House Film. And on today's show, a fantastic conversation between Megan Griffiths and Colin Trevorrow. Two directors with a past, and in Megan's case, a present, in the Pacific Northwest, both Seattle people. Safety Not Guaranteed was a movie that put Colin Trevorrow on the map. He's now making uh, some bigger movies like Jurassic World. I've heard of that one. Book of Henry last year, which was very, very polarizing. Megan Griffiths, of course, an indie filmmaking stalwart known for movies like Eden, Lucky Them, and The Night Stalker. She has a film out that you're very excited about, Nick. Yeah, indeed, Sadie, which is a really powerful, thoughtful uh, drama about a young woman with a father in the military who struggles to come to terms with her mother's new relationship. It's a great film. And has a great cast. Melanie Linsky, John Gallagher Jr. And Tony Hale, Danielle Brooks as well. Very strong stuff. Now, Megan and Colin go back. They met in 2011 and were part of something that they call Crutopia. Yeah, the Seattle film community, indie film community at that time. So many great people came out of it from Lynn Shelton, who, you know, Colin calls the den mother. She gets a few big shouts in this talk. Absolutely, yeah. And she's kind of the, the figurehead of that. And Megan, of course, has worked extensively with Lynn Shelton, as has Lacey Levitt, who, who produced Sadie, Megan's new film, and Safety Not Guaranteed. And here for this podcast has a little cameo as a as kind of a fact checker. Nick, one of the things I enjoyed the most in this conversation is that Megan and Colin were really willing to go to some very uncomfortable places. Absolutely. They touched on some stuff that's for, from diversity in Hollywood to some of the comments that Colin made a few years ago that got a lot of attention about the opportunities facing female directors and maybe not wanting those opportunities. Nick, I enjoyed hearing Colin's new perceptions in that area. He's clearly thought deeply about what he was truly saying. And, and obviously in the context of Me Too, it, it's a different thing to discuss what it is to be a woman in Hollywood. They also, of course, touch upon another woman in Hollywood issue was Bryce Dallas Howard's high heels in Jurassic World. Another controversy. <laughs> right. There was a lot of smoke around that. Absolutely. No, I mean, they have a very frank conversation and, and, and I sort of love that they bring up J.J. Abrams' hiring policy and like actually having a diverse list of people. Hollywood is, is trying to change right now and, and the conversation that they have really captures this disparity between the desire to change and the, the actual ability to change. As Megan said, hopefully things are actually changing rather than people just trying to make that happen. But it also takes in things like the time machine from safety ending up as a Burning Man sculpture. Exactly. I think that, you know, it's a pretty good way to go. I, I'm not sure if I personally would like to end up as a Burning Man sculpture. I say just set Nick Dawson on fire right at the end of the festival, you know? Yeah, it could be an annual thing. <laughs> we hear about the myth of Trevorrow's overnight success. Yeah, that's a problematic myth and one that's kind of made him this sort of, dare I say, straw man? You dare. The talk also takes in why Megan is a prime candidate to be a blockbuster director. Very true. Very true. And Colin's past as a, uh, a singer and a Rasta hat wearer, a side of him I did not know about before. Who saw that one coming? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody saw that. Should we roll the tape? Let's roll the tape. 
I thought a way for us to start would be with your name. Oh. Because uh, your name is not often, uh, doesn't always include all the letters right. that you would want. And it's an opportunity well, now. Well, sometimes it includes more letters than I want in the first name. Right. And then less letters than I'd like in the second name. So what would you prefer? Well, I like it spelled and pronounced the way my parents wanted it spelled and pronounced. So Megan right. Griffiths. Griffiths. The THS. Like Griffiths Park. Yeah, and not Megan Griffith. <laughs> right. Or Griffith. Yeah. Okay. How about you? Uh, you know, I have had my name mispronounced pretty regularly for about uh, six years now. Yeah. Uh, and it's Trevaro. Wait, it wasn't mispronounced before you became a name that nobody a lot ever of said knew? it. Like in school or anything? <laughs> No, in school we were fine. It's weird. Like it's when it when it went out into the open range, when it went into the wild, suddenly it got mispronounced all the time. But I didn't want to correct anybody because it feels kind of douchey mm. to to correct anyone and yeah. then also to say like, well, it rhymes with tomorrow. Yeah. Like who wants to know that? You guy? said that to me the first time I met you that it was called. Now you're Trevorrow. outing me as having said it rhymes like with tomorrow. tomorrow. Oh, and no. I it helped me. I never thought of I it. No, and differently. I stopped for a while. And now I feel like I have to go back because it's it's just, it's become an epidemic. These kind of things really help me. And okay. so uh, I liked Trevar like tomorrow. Well, there it is. So Megan and now Griffiths. We've set the record straight. And Colin Trevorrow talking together. At uh, last. In, in, at last. It's been a long time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, we met uh, in 2011. True. I remember it clearly. Mm. You uh, had just done what I was about to do uh, direct a movie for less than a million dollars in Seattle. Yes. In the early part of this decade. Yes. Uh, which was a special time in Seattle. It, it was a really good time in Seattle. It, it was sort of the heyday of the what we like to call the Crutopia yeah. time. And, they, and still, there's still like a great, the Crutopia comes from this, uh, it came up on the street in New York when we were trying to describe all the wonderful people who populate our sets there and how great they are. And we just, it sort of, it was like, that's a Crutopia. Yeah. Um, so now it's like our, I don't want to get into the film and set of stuff, but it it's dwindled a little bit because there's less work. Well, it sort of it feels like now is like the Muppets take Manhattan, like they've all <laughs> everyone's gone off to uh, and they're writing each other letters yeah, from their Kutopia new jobs. Yeah, takes Manhattan, right? But <laughs> one's at a movie theater and you know one's working in a kitchen. But everybody has gone on to great things. But mm -hmm. there was just this moment in time uh, when I came in uh, to do Safety Not Guaranteed, and you had just directed the Off Hours mm -hmm. and you know, Mel Eslin and Lacey Levitt uh, and. We had our, our den mother, uh, Lynn Shelton, who was in both of our films. <laughs> I wonder if she'll like that or not, den mother. Well, I that, think it's that's like it's a Cub Scout reference. Yeah. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that even applies anymore. Well, Maybe she was a football mom in safety. Oh, wait. So. Who else? Who, whose voice Sorry. is that? <laughs> is this an intervention? <laughs> that is the voice we, of Lacey Levitt. Lacey Levitt's also in the room. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to cut in there. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was not the time. <laughs> Well, welcome. Uh, Lacey uh, is a producer who uh, produced both Safety Not Guaranteed uh, and Sadie, your new film, and many other films uh, yeah. in between. She's here as a fact checker in, a, in official capacity. Oh, cool. <laughs> going to keep you guys on track. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So we're in 2011. It's Crutopia. Uh, mm -hmm. That was my first film, and uh, you had made yours. I'm curious, like, what... What made you decide uh, that The Off Hours specifically was going to be the movie that uh, introduced you as a filmmaker amongst all the stories you had in your head? You mm. said this one. Well, there was a long period of time where I was 
doing the thing that most people tell you not to do in this industry, which was like have all of your eggs in one basket, where you write one script and then you just single focus, try to make that script until you finally do. Uh, Off Hours was that script for me up until right before we made it. Um, So I I wrote that in 2003. We finally shot it in 2010. It Mm -hmm. went to Sundance in 2011, right before I met you. And um, in 2009, so like right before we started shooting it, I finally was like, okay, I'm going to write something else. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to write something more contained and smaller that's easier to get made on no money. And that's going to be the first thing that I make. Mm -hmm. And that was Sadie, which is actually the the thing I just made. Um, Because I remember hearing about it all the way then. (laughs) Um, And it was just sort of in the face of like insurmountable barriers that I started writing something else to do. And then I spent nine years trying to get that one made. But I made a lot of other movies in between. I didn't see the metaphor of that movie, and now I do. (laughs) (laughs) Is that you were trying to get the the truck stop of not being the artist that Exactly, the truck stop of my AD career. Yeah. <laughs> Which was Which long. you had, uh, up until you got out of the truck stop, had been scheduled to to be for us. You were going to be our assistant director yeah. on Safety Not Guaranteed. And uh, you went to Sundance maybe like a month before we showed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we came in, I think about March of 2011, we yeah. showed up. Yeah. Uh, and I think you were maybe our AD for like a week. And we we had one meeting at a diner. And everyone was like, well, Megan, Megan kind of went to Sundance. So, you know, she may She's not be. Doing, probably too good God, for you now. We're not going to do this anymore. <laughs> Uh, but Mel Leslin came in and did an amazing job, and she now did. she's producing and has gone on to amazing things. And yeah, uh, you know, I, I love looking back at that time. And Ben Kaselki as well, who shot he shot both of, films, both of our films, and also, and I just went to see his directorial debut on Saturday at the LA Film Festival. Incredible, which I missed because I was in San Francisco, and I have I have great guilt about that. Yeah, uh, not, not showing. You'll up. see it. I'm sure it will be get get out in the world. I just want to hang with him because he's one of the coolest he's people alive. Best hair. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, so that, yeah, that I, I remember uh, showing up there and I was with Derek Connolly and, and you know, Mark Duplass had recommended to us that we we look into this world as a way to make a movie for $750,000, which is what we had. How much was the off hours? It was less than that, Lacey, right? Lacey can fact check me on How this. We were, we were just, all told, we were just over 100000 oh uh, by the end of the day because we had had a... Uh, a sort of a false start in 2007 where we raised 50,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but we actually made it, we've made it for about 70, I think. Right. If you don't count that, all the stuff, all the money that went into the false start. Yeah. Well, for anyone who's uh, not made films before who's listening, that is impossible. <laughs> that is not a <laughs> Mark real Duplass thing. Mark DePlass is in his living room going, uh-uh. No, I did it. I did, I did it for 15. <laughs> he is a master of it. And and he, he's taught us all how to to get by on on very little. But I guess when we came, we were kind of like a big budget production at 750. You were, you were like the thing where I know like Lacey could go work on it and be like, I can pay you now. Right. I can pay like you Hollywood something. showing up. Yeah. 750000 We're going to get the band back together, but we're yep. actually going to pay you this time yeah. yeah it was actually i had a sticky on my laptop for that whole show my my the budget for safety was seven hundred and fifty two thousand dollars and 48 cents right. or sorry and 40 752 that was Sounds like right. the exact <laughs> until wow. you guys went to post but that that number is <laughs> right. stuck in my brain forever the time machine costs a little extra money that wasn't well i mean it'd be fun to talk about it because it, it was really like i've i've had a 
I've had this rash of of really uh, sentimental and positive memories about that time. Not that they went away, but like it's all been drummed up. I've I have an office. Uh, I live in in London now, and we have an office. And one of the things that I wanted in the office was a blueprint of the time machine. So I went back and dug through uh, Ben Blankenship's uh, archives that he gave me and pulled all this stuff, and we gave it to this guy who makes blueprints for people's boats. Uh, and he's, he's, it's incredible. I shouldn't have told you because I was going to give it to people as a gift. So don't, hopefully people won't listen to like this. Like a little model, <laughs> scale model? Kind no, of it's like a big blueprint as if, you know, an architectural oh schematic wonderful. blueprint of the time oh, machine with all of so his honored. stuff. It's amazing. It's um, amazing. Ben also is the production designer on The Off Hours and yes. he's the production designer on Sadie. So I've shared, uh, shared love for, for him. And the day that you guys shot the time machine on safety was the yeah. only day I visited. Good day. And it was a good day. Good day. <laughs> it was a real fun day to be there. Uh, it was incredible, and I don't. I think now that I've I've made I've made a couple movies with larger budget since, and I think I didn't really understand how much of a miracle that was mm. at the time because I, I to me that we had a ton of money, and, and we're like, well, yeah, of course, people just you know make you know practical time machines in old <laughs> army boats and and bring them in a truck to. Well, this is just what this happens. Isolated on Isolated lake. Yeah. Just like yeah. Uh, and no, that no, was it was there. an absolute miracle, and it's gone. We can't. Uh, they had to take it all apart because they borrowed all the pieces, all that machinery from mm-hmm. various sources. They rented it for like the weekend to put together into this thing. It was. Uh, it became a Burning Man sculpture, most of it. Well, like, cool. A guy was building a Burning Man sculpture and he and Ben were bidding on the same stuff, like metal scrap. And then they were like, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? And so he, Miguel Edwards, helped make the time machine. And then at the end of it, he got to take it and go make a Burning Man sculpture. That's I remember feeling like so. Like my me. ambition is someday to be able to afford to buy this thing that you've created, but I can't now, and I can't <laughs> convince you to just hold on to it until I can. Uh-huh. So it's been it's been torn apart. Yeah, sadly, it is sad. Uh, but we I all have that our way we, about the off hours diner sign. Uh, oh yeah, which actually lived. We were actually prepping to get ready to shoot, and at uh, this abandoned diner that we shot in, and this person stopped by to see what was going on, and he. It turned out to be a person who created those like laminate signs or whatever and fiberglass signs that it sort of go into those backlit signposts. And so he made us one for free because that's how things worked on the off hours. Like people just volunteered all these amazing things like semi trucks and oh, yeah. signs and ambulances and stuff. Then the diner got like a couple years later, the diner got demolished and the sign was still there with our thing in it. And then there was like a fair that went up behind it. And there's this amazing photo of like the off hours sign in the foreground and like this like Ferris wheel and lit up in the background, and now it's all gone. It's like a condo. Oh, the one thing we have, <laughs> hey, like those, you cherish those things forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing I have is Ben Blankenship somehow managed to get me the laser. You know the laser that he steals. Yeah. Uh, and I remember when it happened, I was like, Oh my god! If I could, if I could have that, that would be the most amazing thing. And it was very expensive. There was no way they were going to give it to us. It was like a real piece. And somehow he got, he may have stolen, and I'm outing him now. Oh. Which I don't know how he got it. Yeah, statute of limitations. Uh, But I I cherish it uh, very much. Uh, And and I Derek's thing that he got is uh, I I got him the original. uh, It was it was in a you know this sort of. No, I don't want to call him a gun nut, but it was it was like a survivalist uh-huh. magazine. Uh, oh, you know, I the see. guy who wrote the original so yeah. he's not guaranteed that. So I got one of the few remaining copies of the original Ooh. survivalist magazine and I had it framed that uh where where it all began. And that's all we have left. Uh, uh, and a movie. And a movie, which a movie. is the immortalization of all of it. I, I hope so. <laughs> Uh, that was only you know six years ago when Safety came out, uh, and I guess seven mm. years ago for for your first film. Yeah. Uh, so it's not forever. Technically, not my first feature. 
What was your first? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. Yeah, I is, thought this it was. Is, this is an organic learning. Now I'm moment. learning. Um, what was your first feature? I made a film in 2002 called First Aid for Choking. I did not know this. M- most people don't. I, <laughs> Off Hours is almost in t- always credited with my being my first feature. Okay, and so I'm not like a complete you are, asshole. No, no, okay, totally. It's. N- I actually don't correct people a lot of the time like you don't with your last name because I just don't want to be like, <laughs> it's not my first feature. <laughs> um, but uh, I made this other film when I first got out of film school. I got to Seattle and it was just like real renegade sort of film community and I was really inspired by the people and I made this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really didn't see the light of day very much. It was um, it was seen around some small film festivals and it got a, a distribution deal through Film Threat DVD. Um, hey. Non-existent anymore. But, um, and, but then I went and made worked on other people's movies for eight years and before off hours. And I think you can look at the two, if you can find First Aid for Choking, you can look at the two side by side and see the growth of like what it means to go work on other people's movies and learn from other directors and and the mistakes and failures of other filmmakers. So, yeah. But so that's the only reason I bring it up now, not to just correct you. This is the place to do it. (laughs) Uh, It's interesting that you you seem to have chosen a path that was very production-based uh, from your first feature, as mm-hmm. we now know, to your second feature. Uh, I, I One of the reasons, I think, why it, we were able to even get the budget that we got uh, is that I had been working in Hollywood for a long time mm-hmm. uh, as a writer. And so I, I, when I when I made Safety, I think one of the, 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 the real advantages that I had is that when I went on that round of meetings that we have, uh, you know, even before the movie came out, after Sundance, uh, well, I knew a lot of the people because I'd been work. I'd worked for every studio at that point wow. uh, as a screenwriter, and I'd sold multiple spec scripts. So I was I was a known entity yeah. in a way that I Did think a lot of. Did you have stuff that had been produced that you were a writer on before? Never safety? produced, but you, you know, it's Hollywood, so no, like, you, totally. you, know, you sell specs. These things stay in development forever. I think I'd actually worked for everyone but Universal, which is is where I work now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I had from the I sold my first spec to Steven, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg and DreamWorks when I was thirty. It was called Tester. Uh, and then I worked on that script with Walter Parks, who was the producer who bought it, for like five years. Wow. And he just like drilled down on me and, and taught me how to uh, be a writer. <laughs> and it was tedious and endless and long and, and not profitable. And how old you, were you then? I, I was 30 when that, I directed Safety when I was, I think, 37 to 38. Uh-huh. 37. And so, thir- I don't remember. Something like that. Uh, but <laughs> I it, it was, ready, not what your age it was. It felt like, yeah, it felt it felt like, a, 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 and I, during that time, I sold other specs. And so, I was writing original stuff. And I was writing, you know, pretty large scale, you know, mainstream entertainments uh, in, as a writer. And so, I think when I went and made Safety, which had these, you know, there are veins of mainstream entertainment that flow throughout it, even though it's it's a an independently budgeted film. And it has right. a very mainstream choice at the end. Right. Uh, and that works, that works, I think, in the movie's favor, but also probably worked in your favor as a person going out into the world uh, to be hired. I agree. It does. I mean, well, I, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg said that to me directly, that like that choice that you made, uh, ma- you had a choice to be uh, an independent director or a mainstream director. And with that choice, you declared yourself a mainstream director. He's a smart uh, man. I think that's true. Um, uh, do you, because it's not how the script ended. No, it wasn't. And it wasn't my intention to make that declaration either. Really? Was, Even in the post I wasn't out. No, I just thought it would be awesome. And I thought it would I mean, be beautiful and hopeful. <laughs> and, and like, it's what I wanted to see as an audience member. But, doing what you want to see as an audience member is maybe considered a mainstream choice. That's a, it's a mainstream kind of thinking. I guess it depends on what kind audience. of audience member you are. Very true. Very true. <laughs> it is interesting to see how these little choices you make, you know, the butterfly effect of that can can change, you know, trajectories. Mm-hmm. But 
I think the combination of that with the fact that executives that I met with all knew me already. And they're like, well, like he's been, he's been writing within this structure for a while. Like he kind of knows how to fit into this very, you know, mm-hmm. mainstream entertainment world with, with the stuff that he's creating. So there's like, the you know, the learning process will be, will be less as we try to, you know, take this independent young mind and forge him into something that can make us money. Uh, like his podcast, instincts so I can, are where they want. Yeah. They're like, excellent. They're exactly where we need yeah. them. Good, good. Uh, <laughs> One of the things that I, just to interject, it's it's so funny because you guys have such different career trajectories in some respects. Like you're talking about how you've had this incremental step by step process as your as a filmmaker, and Colin, of course, how most people know you is like the guy who did the one Safety Not Guaranteed and then made Jurassic World. But mm-hmm. when you explain it, which is what I always explain to young folks who ask me about you, which by the way happens all the time still, um, I say like he was not an overnight success. He wrote for ten years. He was working in the industry for 10 years and you never knew who he was before he got to make Safety Not Guaranteed. So although at a certain point, the optics of it is that you're an overnight success, you were an overnight success after 10 years. I, I don't, I don't, I feel like it's almost a, a disadvantage to, as a message to a younger people to think that it's possible to be an overnight success. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there's a, there's a media narrative uh, that especially when Jurassic World came out, uh, people, you know, Steven Spielberg chose this guy and like he made this movie. And, and I don't, I don't know if, if that's very helpful <laughs> because I feel like then you look at it and say, oh, I can just be in a 7-Eleven and wearing a ball cap and Steven Spielberg point his finger at me and suddenly I'm making Jurassic World. It's really, hard and it takes for everybody all of us a long period of 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 consistent failure uh and i we can talk about our failures and i think we should because mm-hmm. they continue beyond that uh they happen yep. all the time uh and you just get constantly like slammed down into the surf again and again this and industry again. really has a way of grounding you yeah <laughs> just keeping you humble yeah all the time. All, every day, <laughs> every day. You're like, I am walking on air. I just had the greatest screening and then like a review comes out that's not great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I never, I don't know. I never trust the good though. Like I'm always very suspicious of the good. Mm-hmm. And yet when I, the bad I take is gospel truth. Uh, so like I'll, you know, I even moments when you would have thought, you know, I, the weekend Jurassic World came out, like that, the, the movie being released itself was was kind of, it wasn't a happy experience for me. I was so dialed into, you know, the, the concerns about what Bryce was wearing on her feet. And I, I was, that was obviously like not our intention. And so the idea that people were perceiving that, to, you know, to be a negative thing while we had worked so hard to make this thing, it made me just miserable. I did not enjoy that summer was whatsoever. There, had there been a conversation about that, like on set at, from her or anyone, um, just uh, bringing that up, just out of curiosity? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was something that she very much wanted to do. And oh. we, t- we talked about it quite a bit and she felt it was a character choice. Uh, and I, I think that there was, you know, when it happened, there was kind of this moment that uh, the only thing that made me uncomfortable about it, because, you know, you're a director, the buck stops with you. I have conversations with all of my actors all the time. And, you know, it was something that she just thought was empowering and awesome. <laughs> and I supported it. There was a moment when it was suggested, like, I made her do it. Uh, <laughs> as if I'm like, it's 1920s, like, listen, Chicky, you're going to run in those heels and you're going to love it. <laughs> you you know? would like to think that that only happened in the 1920s. <laughs> right, right. It could, it could happen now, too. Uh, but no, you know, but that that's was, not what you did. No, no, that's certainly not. But you know, I do like the word checky, actually. I might start using People that. used to say that, right? Yeah, I like it. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, but when you, when you make a certain set of choices and if choices aren't, you know, received well, for me, it's like all I hear. I don't know what it is like for you, but mm-hmm. it's all I hear. It is a little scary to think about being in the position you were on in Jurassic World and, and like having 
so many millions of people who have, in your case, a lot of investment in the story you're telling already, you know, being able to like judge you. So you had the big jump and there's a lot of people like waiting for you to fail. Sure, absolutely. (laughs) And it's also, it's really hard, you know, because of that, it's almost impossible to talk about my own experience without people just being like, shut the fuck up, man. Like, you're doing fine. Like, right. you know, you had this giant leap. Like, I don't want to hear about what's hard for you about it. Uh, so that's why it's nice to sit with another filmmaker because, like, <laughs> filmmakers understand that this process is hard. This process has, like, you know, horrible heartbreaks throughout it. Yeah. Uh, no matter what level you're working at. Yeah. And it's it's just it's just truth that we all share. Yeah, and I, I mean, there's also, there's the part of it where, you know, the conversation around how that happens way, way more often for white men mm-hmm. than it does for people of color or women, mm-hmm. um, which I think is, you know, a valid conversation alongside of the other stuff. You well, know? just empirically true. Yeah, and like, totally true. You know, yeah, there's no like, way to debate um, it. Hopefully to get less true every year. But um, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I know that there was a... a offhand comment that you made about that mm-hmm. at one point um, about like maybe women just aren't wanting those opportunities right. and you got a lot of backlash for sure. that. Sure, and you know, deserved, but uh, but you know, it was, it was a moment when I was actually, I was, I was talking about like Lynn Shelton, <laughs> like specifically. She knew that. She yeah, was like, she oh God, that was me that who was said me. that. Oh no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of in that same place after I'd done Jurassic. Uh, and uh, I had, you know, we have a movie called Intelligent Life that Rebecca Thomas is directing now. And that was the movie, that was the first thing I was going to do to like start producing, yeah. uh, which is something that's important to me. And so I was out like talking to agents uh, and specifically I wanted a, a woman to direct the movie. And I was very vocal about it. Uh, and this is when I was in prep on Book of Henry. I was in New York. Uh, and I just got a lot of stuff back from agents of like, oh no, she doesn't want to do a, gi- a giant studio thing. Like she doesn't want to deal with it. And what was interesting <laughs> like in light of everything that we're talking about now to kind of recontextualize what she doesn't want to deal with it might have meant is something that I've thought about recently mm-hmm. as I've seen, you know, like what that uh, what that experience might have been that I wasn't even thinking about at the time. I was just thinking about interest and, and you know, connection to material. Uh, but it wasn't, no, you know, this script isn't for her. It was that, like, she's got her own thing that she wants to do. And she's, you know, I remember um, Jennifer Kent, who I think is, like, one of the, like, a Peter Jackson-level debut uh, of a filmmaker. And I was like, oh, well, then, you know, she's going to do, like, something huge. And she got for a lot of big things, but ultimately chose to make uh, The Nightingale, which is coming out right now, which is very personal to her. And I I think that, you know, where, even if I chose my words poorly, what I was thinking was it is important that just because, like, the— the new measure of success seems to be, you know, Marvel blockbusters or these big things. That doesn't mean that every filmmaker is going to have an interest in doing those kinds of movies. And you and I had a lot of conversations about it too. Of yeah. Like, you know, would you want to, you know, take a script written by somebody else that is is fit into like a larger universe that you may or may or may not have even been interested in, you know, at any time in your life and find a way to find something within it that speaks to you. And yeah. some people are able to and do I it. And I would. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's like, you know, and I feel like I should probably say to all the studio executives listening right, to this listening that Lynn now. might also want to do that and at this point and might have a different answer than she gave yes, you earlier. that's why but, I never mentioned her name. I didn't want to like suddenly, <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't yeah, want to speak I think for her. She's, I think she may have a different point of view. But um, but yeah, no, I think it's it's the, the idea that like it's going to be a challenging situation for anyone to walk in the door of that kind of ex- experience or opportunity. I mean, you're just... Um, 
it's hard enough to direct when there's like one other voice that has equal power to mm. you. Where if you're walking into a situation like that, you you don't necessarily even have buck stops here kind of power mm -hmm. as a director and your yet your name is on it. But yeah, I mean, as much as like that kind of stuff is sort of scary, especially as an indie filmmaker person who's had a lot of creative control, like it is like you do want, you don't want the message to be like, I wouldn't want that opportunity because it sounds hard. You know, it's like everyone should yeah. be, you know, people should be sort of equally presented with that opportunity. Absolutely. And then 100%. hopefully take it or not, depending on who exactly you are as, as opposed to like what gender you are or what race you are or whatever. So yeah. hopefully people are, have, are learning that. I think I, I think learning and things are slowly changing. And I think if you look at uh, if you look at the landscape now versus you know three years ago, uh, there there I don't think there's been a revolution, but you know this has been chipped away at. I think in a, in a significant way, uh, and I and I just hope that what seems to be happening now, you know, I'm I'm producing uh, two movies right now. Both of them are directed by women. Uh, one of them had a, another director who was on for a while, went off to direct another giant movie. Uh, and her, the, the new director we hired was a woman. Uh, I think that it being inside for me, you know, I'm, I'm inside the castle. Like I'm able to hear the way they talk in the boardrooms oh and I understand. Awful. Well, <laughs> but like on a, on a positive note, like they're talking about this inside All the right, castle. It's and they're, they're the Absolutely. Walls. Like the castle is taken is very seriously. <laughs> Under threat of storming the castle. They're talking yeah. about it inside the well, castle. Well, that's, sometimes that's what it takes. Exactly. Right. I mean, it's uh, under threat of lawsuits from the ACLU. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Now there is actually movement happening. But there is, is like it's it is a it's a real conversation that 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 uh there is actionable change that's happening as a result of everyone having their feet held to the fire. Uh by uh, a I th I mean, when we look back at some of the things that our generation did, mm -hmm. uh I think I think we make great like food is great like I think we did a lot for food and and I think I think we made some change here there's a lot of people who realize that this is an imbalance that is wrong uh, and that has to be it has to be actively altered I really hope it's true it's funny because there's been these like sea changey kind of feeling moments in the past especially on gender stuff mm -hmm. um, and yet the numbers don't change year after year so I'm really hoping that the next report that comes out does actually show like that there has been progress in the actual percentage of movies that are directed yes. by women and people of color. And um, and I just don't know. Uh, I, it's like I want to wait to see it actually like manifest. It has in television to a degree that's way greater than film. If not, it's not like move the needle to the middle or anything. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely the change is more visible there. But in terms of big budget sort of studio release movies, it's still hasn't registered on the actual No, uh, uh, very, very measured progress. I don't think sea change could be applied <laughs> to, at all. Uh, and, you know, but the yeah, only thing— I, I'm hopeful about it, but I'm, I'm just, like, reserving my my happy dance for a little bit. And, you know, one of the things I, I think that was identified about my situation, you know, the, of what I was a symptom of, uh, which is just undeniable, uh, that I think is very positive is that, like, look, like, it is, it is probably— easier and more instinctive, instinctive for you to look at someone who looks like you and yeah. say, that person reminds me of me. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that, you know, I can say, Emily Carmichael reminds me of me. 
and it's not because of how she looks or or who she is mm -hmm. uh, as uh, as as a woman. It's who she is as a writer mm -hmm. and a thinker and a creator. And uh, that I think just being able to take that one little step, you know, beyond you know what has always been our comfort zone, and just see if maybe there's someone who doesn't look like you who does remind you of you. Because that part is probably always going to apply. Like you want to find somebody who like connects with your creative mm -hmm. instincts. But that person doesn't necessarily have to be a white male uh, or, or any of those descriptives mm. and most likely won't be if you just look a little harder. Yeah. I really liked what J.J. Abrams did in terms of uh, sort of combating this at, at uh, Bad, Bad Robot. Robot. Um, and, uh, and like the basically looking at the demographic breakdown of the population mm -hmm. and saying I would like the list that I get for these hires to reflect that. Mm -hmm. percentage like you know 51% women or whatever and like just on down the line for for all these different types of people and uh and I just was like even if that just makes it to the list stage yeah. it's huge because there's all these people who have never made those lists who mm -hmm. would then people would have to go out and like seek them out and find their work and find the best people in in every category and like show them to a person who can make some big decision making, mm -hmm. you know, power. And so uh, I love that. And I was like, that should be the thing that just gets applied across all the studios. Mm -hmm. um, that would make a giant difference mm -hmm. because ultimately they're going to hire who they're going to hire, but at least they'll see people who aren't the same five people they already know. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Do you now, when you look back on the movies that you've made, have, because I've been, I've been, you know, looking within and trying to find patterns and like what interests you in these different things? And I've, I've seen certain patterns in my work that yeah. I may not have been conscious, you know, yeah, I do that too now. I think the way I talk about it, like with the empathy thing and the like understanding people's behavior, I understand. I wouldn't be able to say that, I don't think, when I was making The Off Hours. Uh -huh. It's like only through talking about all the movies you make over the years because it's been five movies since then. You know, it's like, oh yeah, there are these patterns that emerge. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I'm not I've, so unpredictable, <laughs> even though you, you, I jump around on the genre. Yeah, but the front. movies you make inform you of what your own interests are. What you know, all yeah. of those things to a certain extent. I've like my thing that I found because I it, all of my movies are similar in this way is that uh, it's somebody who who gets better. Uh, over the course, who's making not great choices and is is in a place that is almost unlikable. And through uh, an experience, and, and in certain cases, like a traumatic set of experiences, uh, finds their own truth, finds their ability to be the person they have the potential to be. Yeah. And that's very personal for me. And, you know, I, you know, in my, in my life, you know, I, when I, when I look back and I, I, you know, I grew up in a, in a very different way. I didn't travel around. I grew up in Oakland, California. And, and I was, uh, I was in the arts from a very young age. My my father was uh, like a country rock star, and, and like to me, and, wow. and he was a regional country rock star. But to <laughs> me, he was the biggest rock star in the world. But he would open for like Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and Crystal Gale and all these cool uh, country artists. And this is like the early '80s. So I, you know, I, I got to see my dad up on stage, you know, uh, performing for all these people. And so I was I was energized to get into the arts for early. And my mom was so supportive. I think she was like disappointed I didn't become a singer, uh, which very few mothers are disappointed their their child didn't <laughs> go into an impossible uh, He chose a different impossible career. Uh, yeah, he yeah, chose a different impossible great. career. Um, Were you a singer though for a little while? I was a singer for a long time. In San Francisco, I was in the San Francisco Boys Choir and I was in the opera and so I was in the San Francisco Opera and I was a little boy singer. Uh, but it was you know, it was San Francisco in the 80s so actually, you know, most of my mentors growing up were gay men. Yeah. Uh, and the and uh, you know, I, I don't want to name any individuals who and and, and there's some who are no longer alive, they're no longer with us because this was San Francisco in the 80s and 
and AIDS was a was a scourge. And and I I, I learned a lot about uh, you know a world that most kids are probably sheltered from. Uh, you know, based and there was you know a huge homeless problem going on in the eighties in, in San Francisco. And so you were if you were going into that city, you know, you you saw a lot more out than a lot of kids in their neighborhood you know were witness to. And because of the singing, I, I got into a, a group that was uh, in in Oakland, California, like a youth choir. And I was like the only white guy. And it was it was a time like before, like we sort of identified like appropriation where like the white guy would wear like a sort of rainbow Rasta hat and stuff. Oh, and yeah. I know it was rough, but it was, it, it was before know. we kind of ID'd that <laughs> stuff. It's like, no, not so much. Yeah. My dad taught um, chemistry, which draws a lot of, I mean, he was mostly teaching graduate students in my high school years and stuff. And we would have Thanksgiving um, dinner parties where everyone who didn't like go home for Thanksgiving, which was all the international students, would come to our house. Mm -hmm. And we would put out, you know, a bunch of tables. And my mom would ask everyone to bring some dish from their home country that they liked. And then we'd have these like Thanksgiving dinners that included like turkey, but also like dolmadas and like sushi and, you know, just all these things from all over the cultural spectrum. And I, I like, I, at the time I was like, oh my God, there's all these people at my house. It's like so stressful. But um, when I think back on it, I'm like, wow, what a rich environment to get to be growing up yeah. and to like get to have exposure to all these different cultures. It's uh, it, before the internet, before it, everybody got to like have friends in all sorts of countries if they want to. But yeah. like, I just was like exposed to that through the Well, it's because it's actually, I think that makes you a great candidate for being uh, a maker of blockbuster films. And I will explain. I, I think- <laughs> Please do it. I'm going Listen to. Listen up, everybody. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> I think that, you know, one of the things that I've uh, found to be a necessity is to really understand uh, the perspectives of others and hold multiple points of view in your head at the same time. If yeah. you're going to- make a movie that needs to play in uh, all parts of America right off the bat. When you think of how different it is from where I grew up in Oakland to, you know, Florida to, you know, Vermont, where we lived for a long time. I and mean, America is a very disparate uh, place. And yet everyone has the right to be entertained. Even people who I disagree with politically have the right to be entertained when it comes to this, you know, these yeah. kind of films. And then add to that the whole world. These are global films. So it has to simultaneously play to a child in China and a grandmother, uh, you know, in South Africa and, uh, and someone in Russia like when you think of all the daunting. perspectives yeah. yeah it is it's daunting and so <laughs> uh, part of the job and something I've really embraced is watching films from these countries traveling to these places I, I live in, in London so you know we I take my family to, to Morocco and to Greece and to Scandinavia places where they can get a, a work I mean certainly it's great for my kids but I'm there trying to talk to as many people as possible oh, and just like understanding well what entertains you like what's your storytelling and I've watched oh, there's so nice. Chinese like films yeah. I've watched that I I don't, I don't know if they were released here, but you should like watch The Mermaid. Have you ever seen The Mermaid? Mm -mm. I mean, the, uh, and, and like Wolf Warrior too, like the big Chinese blockbusters. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the style of, of the way that they communicate story. And I think one of the reasons why James Cameron has been so successful uh, is I think he really uh, paid attention to the storytelling patterns that people respond to uh, globally. And what are, you know, what are the things that uh, are unique among us? Uh, and, you know, in the case of Titanic and, uh, and Avatar, you know, both have sort of, you know, vaguely American or corporate military evil. There's uh, a, a, a two, you know, a male and a female lead, a strong female lead. Uh, who uh, is one of them is taken into a, a world where they never could have imagined, uh, you know, either a big ship or you yeah. know, or a, or a, a planet, uh, and uh, and then the second half descends into horrible, brutal violence. 
uh, <laughs> and, and there's uh, and actually Jurassic World is 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 actually very similar, mm-hmm. you know, in the way that it's structured. And in uh, I think that the world is certainly happy to look at a at uh, you know American uh, greed, capitalism, or military as a kind of evil, uh, and and that set of values. And I think uh, there's a romance that we all like uh, around the world still either secretly or openly kind of yearn for. But romance is defined differently for everybody, so mm-hmm. it's it's really hard to like find something that uh, that can work, you know, on that kind of a level. I'm but I think you'd be that, great at it. Oh, thank you. I'm realizing <laughs> that Sadie is sort of hits those buttons too, actually, because yeah. it is, I mean, especially in terms of, I mean, there's like a romance element to it and there's a lot of interpersonal relationshipy stuff, but, um, but also it calls into question sort of the way that we solve problems as a country. And I feel mm-hmm. like other countries might be uh, also somewhat critical of the way we do that Um, because, you know, it's a movie that is about a young girl, but I always think of it as a war movie. And, like, part of it is that she's learning from the world she lives in that how to solve problems is through violence. Mm -hmm. And so she's learning that all the way up to, you know, her dad who's a soldier and he's part of this, you know, large machine that goes into other countries and uh, solves problems with violence. Um, not entirely, not to paint the military in one, with one broad brush, but mm-hmm. um, but there is sort of a an overarching lesson that comes out of it is like, this is how we, um, we're going to go fight a war to solve this problem. Um, and then there's, you know, it kind of goes down through, you know, the media we consume and the way we solve problems just in front of children in a, in a much more microcosmic way that, all of these things are feeding them and they're, they're absorbing them. And how is that if impacting the way they solve mm-hmm. problems as mm-hmm. in their own problems? And um, and how is it impacting their, how they see the difference between right and wrong and all this stuff. So it is sort of a, a small little story, but it has these big themes that yeah. other, I would like to think that other countries would. Yeah, actually, I, I know that they would because I took the film to Italy. Um, it had an international premiere at Giffoni Film Festival in, in Italy. And, it was. A, it's a film festival for youth, and there's youth from 50 plus countries, and they all come together, and they're your jury. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and you're in various categories. We were in the 16 to 18 category, because uh, and our star is a 14 year old, and they we they watched the movie. I interacted with them. Had a 45 minute Q and A, and then at the end of the day, we won um, for best film. Mm. Um, and it was like the way we talked about it was like, oh, these themes are not just American themes. These are themes that transcend. Uh, countries and borders that people identify with. Every a lot of people are worried about the consequence-free violence that everyone's mm-hmm. being shown in all sorts of media, and how that's affecting people. And even kids who are being affected by it are worried about it. Yeah. And that's really interesting to me because it's not something I even necessarily predicted was how much kids were going to understand the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really didn't predict it would necessarily that a non-American audience would resonate that way with it. It's frustrating that so many of those um, issues that you brought up have been politicized because so many of them are shouldn't be political issues. They're you right. know they're parenting issues or human issues. Yeah. Uh, and you know I, I think that you know what's interesting about this film, uh, and I think I think all your films you know tend to take on you know a. I mean, I guess Lucky Them was maybe not, you know, your most, you know, intense movie of, of, of the <laughs> it moment. It had a less, like, uh, you know, 
deep, dark theme. Right. It was more about a person's journey and like yes. the way you see yourself. And so I won't say all. Yeah. Uh, but but you know they they don't paint with broad strokes. Was my point. And I yeah. and I feel like right now it's very easy. You know, and I've I've definitely you know I've suffered from this myself. Is if you, if you are not absolutely uh, very clear and specific in your intentions and in mm-hmm. either something you say or something that's in your film, uh, generalizations are are applied to your words. Oh yeah, that we were live in an era uh, where nuance is not really no. Uh, Part of the conversation, uh, and that's tough, but to, <laughs> it's not, and yet to to allow that to uh, you know to to be woven into your work, that nuance uh, is something that, while simultaneously uh, needing to take into all consideration all those other things, everyone that's going to watch it, that's who's totally different. You know, I had a film that I made last year that was uh, you know I, it both like my biggest failure as a filmmaker, and yet also simultaneously uh, the thing I, I, I something I love deeply, and also was was made with uh, with intentions to. Uh, appeal to a very broad audience. Uh, and, you know, the Book of Henry was made uh, for, I, I was kind of making a faith-based film. And I found that faith-based films often uh, are not able to reach outside the, you know, the community that they are assigned to. Yeah. Uh, and I felt like this was something that uh, I was very confident when I read it was going to appeal to, especially uh, in America, uh, you know, a, a pretty a pretty wide swath of people. And, you know, we, we tested that movie and we tested it at a 90. And when you tested a 90, you, you you open it at a good time, you feel really good. <laughs> and you open it at a good time of year and you're like, wow, we got it. People love this movie. Uh, and then uh, that movie, you know, ran, you know, it has to get through uh, the cities uh, and it has to get through that perspective. Mm-hmm. And it just was not received uh, in any way that was similar to, you know, to the way that the test audience was received it. Uh, and I don't say that, you know, critics or, or people who didn't like the movie were wrong. It's just that, you know, people have very different needs from their storytelling and from, you know, and from their films. And so, uh, so I think that there was a bit of a miscalculation, you know, on my part of like, I'm making a movie for an audience that's actually never going to get to see it because it's not going to get out of the spout <laughs> that it has to go through yeah. uh, in order to reach those people. I feel like that I can relate because uh, I, I mean, I, it remains to be seen whether Sadie will make it through the gauntlet into lots of homes. But mm-hmm. like, we just took it, Lacey and I, to across the South on this thing called the Southern Circuit. And mm-hmm. we took it to a lot of people who... Um, who don't live on the other side of the gatekeeper's barrier in mm-hmm. the critical circles. You know, they don't live in cities, and they actually, many of them never had met a filmmaker before and didn't have independent theaters in their in their towns. And so it did resonate with those. And in red states, too, you know, it's like, I think purposefully, uh, I say I think it's been nine years and it's hard to remember, but I, I don't think that there was an intention to make this, like, you know, a political movie. Mm-hmm. It was a, It's about big political ideas, I guess, but it's not a movie where the character pulls out a gun and shoots a lot of people, mm-hmm. but that is part of the backdrop of the story mm-hmm. uh, is gun violence. And um, But I think the character, the journey that Sadie goes on on the course of it, I don't think is a red or blue uh, journey. Like, I agree you, with you. I think yeah. you can look at her story and have a takeaway from it, even if you are in the military, even if you are a gun owner, even if you don't really have uh, a problem with like a lot of uh, violence in your media, but you could still see that it that there might be an effect on children from all of these things cumulatively, um, mm-hmm. and be concerned about that as a person who lives in this world. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think there is. It, it's interesting to think about like the audience of it, because I didn't get a lot of pushback from people in the South. Uh, thinking I'd made like some like 
super liberal, like, commie movie. You know, like, yeah, I don't think it doesn't play that. It doesn't feel that way. Yeah, I, I feel like you know, and you know, even where, I'm where you coming grew up, from that place though politically, so it's like nice right. to know that it doesn't necessarily alienate people in that way. But you also you traveled a lot when you were younger. You saw a lot of different parts of this country, and you were mm-hmm. aware that you know it, there is no single brush that can paint all people. And no. you know, and yeah. I think it's uh, you know you are very brave to have made a movie about what you made a film about. You have made a set of choices as a filmmaker that uh, I know will define you long into the future uh, and, and are very much a part of who you are. And the fact that you have, you know, made a choice to, to make so many movies th- uh, about challenging subjects that it sometimes are uncomfortable subjects. Uh, as someone who has made a similar choice, I, I appreciate <laughs> it so much. Thank you. Ditto. <laughs> Ditto. Ditto is a good word to end on, right? <laughs> All right. I know. We're done. Thank you, Colin. Thank you. That was really fun. That was a lot of fun. And thank you to Megan and Colin for that. And I'm not going to ruin it, but there will be more from them in our best of episode later in the year because it's some choice nuggets Ooh, from that conversation that I clips. have, uh, yeah, unreleased clips that are going to resurface. Thanks also to our engineer Chase McElhenney and 4th Street Recording in Santa Monica where this conversation was taped. They were wonderful hosts. Shouts as always to our producer, Mark Yoshizumi and to The Range who composed and performed our fantastic theme song. Go hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube and, and go to talkhouse.com for amazing written daily content. Also, aside from subscribing for new episodes, Nick, take a look in our archive. A couple of the artists named in today's episode have recorded podcasts with us. Of course, we have Melanie Linsky, who's in Sadie. And then we have Lynn Shelton. Lynn Shelton. The den mother herself. <laughs> I'm Ellie Einhorn. I'm Nick Dawson. And we'll see you next week. Peace. Bye.